When I was a kid, I would go out uh, all the time, actually, uh, in the front yard in the driveway, and I would pretend to hit big shots as a bluke. Uh, a Duke Blue Devil is the word that I'm trying to say. They're a college basketball team. Uh, and I'd go out there for hours, and it didn't matter if it was raining or sometimes pouring. I would go out front, and I, I would pretend to hit these big shots, last-second shots. I always had a triple-double and got a lot of points, and I was really good. And I would do that because, just to be honest, that's what I wanted to do someday. I wanted to be on the Duke Blue Devils and play basketball for them, and uh, that was the goal. And uh, I only, I mean, if you asked me what I wanted to be as a kid, it was a professional athlete. I had some other ideas, but that was always plan A. And uh, and I would also, in uh, the living room, I remember doing this. I still like kind of doing this. Um, uh, I just don't do it as much because it's not socially acceptable when you become an adult. But I, I would take, like I had the football, I would grab a football, and I would just throw myself into the couch pretending that I was getting tackled and trying to get into the end zone over and over and over and make diving catches on the couch and then do it again and again and again. And, uh, and I would do it because I, you know, I wanted to be a professional athlete. I was always almost a football player for Halloween. Not a big dress up guy, but I could go as a football player. Uh, and I did it because it's where I wanted to be someday. It's what I wanted to do someday. And we understand that, right? Like when you're a kid, you have a, a kind of a natural uh, desire to pretend to be what someday you want to be. And as adults, I think we also know that, it's, that there's kind of this truth that's, that's similar, and that is we should be acting in such a way that is taking us towards our, our ultimate goal. If we want to, you know, be a millionaire someday, then, then we should save our money. If we want a certain job, then we should take certain steps to get that job. We should be acting as though we are headed towards wherever it is we want to head. And, and actually, I think we look at people that say, well, this is where I want to be, and then they just do a whole bunch of different things kind of on the side th that aren't in line with those goals at all, and, and we just kind of go, well, how's that working out for you, you know? I mean, it's like that's never, you're never going to get there. You're never really going to uh, be successful at this thing that you want to be successful at if you don't actually take some steps to get there. And I think that, that what we're going to see today as we kind of finish this series, as, as has already been mentioned, is that when we sing here at church, on our own in our bedrooms, but especially here at church, then in many ways we are, I don't want to use the word pretending, but we are enacting the very thing that we are hopeful for, and that is our situation in heaven. I think that when we gather here in, in the context of church and we sing to God, then it ought to be, it's not always this way, but it ought to be us taking steps to prepare ourselves for something that will happen in eternity in an even greater and grander way. Now I want to stop and just kind of catch you up if you haven't been here for this series. Uh, we're talking about singing and singing to God specifically, not just any singing. And, uh, and so far we've seen that God really wants you to sing to Him. And that's made really clear throughout the, the, the entirety of the Bible, that God values, God covets your singing. And then we saw that when we sing, we sing in part so that others can hear us sing, and they can be encouraged and inspired by our singing, and they can hear the words that we're singing and go, oh, that's a truth that never really sank in before. And, uh, and we talked about how sometimes a, a great sermon 
doesn't have as much of an effect on people as the voices of the congregation singing the one song afterwards because that is part of how God has set up you know, our system as humans. He set us up to, to respond to singing, and so God has called us to sing. And then last week we talked about how, how when we sing, Satan doesn't like it, and part of withstanding what, what Satan, the enemy, the dark forces want to do in your life it is singing and singing to God. And today, first, actually, before I say today, I, I want to say, I want to say, I like this a lot, uh, it's important, that, that I've been blessed by you guys responding to these sermons. And it's not every sermon that, that I get to kind of see results um, from. People say, like, things and good sermon, or I'm impacted in this way, and I love that, and we have the cards in front of you that you can always respond, and I love hearing what God has done in your life through a sermon and praying for you and those types of things, and that's cool, Uh, but a lot of times, you know, you say like, hey, don't lie, and I, I can't tell if you lied yesterday, you know, like I have no way of doing that unless you've told me about it. But when it comes to singing, and especially congregational singing to God, I, I can see a difference. And I, I think, I hope that you've noticed the difference too, that, that our singing this morning and in the last couple of weeks as we've gone through this has been different. And, and I haven't given you like tangible things that you could say, well, I just need to sing louder. Because we said sometimes you could sing loud and not be singing in a way that pleases God at all. But it seems that you're at least working to sing from the, the very core of who you are, from your heart, from your spirit, as, as we've looked at in this, in this series of sermons. And so that's, that's great. Thank you for uh, actually responding to the Word of God. I, I, it's one of the things I like about our congregation is I think we care and we're actually trying to get better. And, and today, here's my hope, that, that we're just going to take it one step further because we're going to see that someday... In heaven, the singing is going to be incredible. And if heaven is our goal, and I think it's every person here's goal, even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't think much about heaven, you still have that idea that someday you'll be there. If heaven is your goal, then singing and singing in a profound, powerful way should be part of the process now to prepare you for where you want to be someday. An online article I, um, I, I stumbled across said, We see songs of deliverance from Genesis to Revelation. Whenever God comes through and a prayer is answered, a melody is not far away. The Spirit seems to form the words from the grateful worshiper. God is praised and His truth reaffirmed. And we've talked about how, you know, at the, near the beginning of the Bible, we see these songs of, of praise when God delivers. And then here today, we're going to look kind of near the end of the Bible. And, and it's the same thing. God has delivered. And so the people, they feel a need to pray. Here's the other thing I want to tell you before we look at this passage of scripture. Scripture, It's a big time secret that you don't know. Uh, the book of Revelation is primarily a book about the worship of Jesus. You might think that it's a book that's weird, and that it was put in the Bible so there was some weirdness and so that you could, you know, I don't know, read about blood or whatever and get a little rated R action. You might think it's a book that's predicting the future and, and there's some of that in the book of Revelation for sure. But the, but the book was written to say, hey... Jesus has done incredible things. Jesus is the lion and the lamb, as we'll see it in a second, as I'll talk about. And Jesus is our king and our savior. And so therefore, no matter what persecution you face, no matter how difficult it is, you should worship Jesus, the lion and the lamb, the king, the savior of the universe. That's what the book is about. 
And, and so to set up our passage today, this is kind of what's been going on. John talks to the churches that were in existence at the time. And, and then all of a sudden, he's, he's moved into this vision. And in this vision, there's these scrolls. And they come down to the last scroll. And John looks at this scroll, and he thinks, nobody can open that scroll. And the, the, the vision is written in such a way for us that, that we're supposed to connect the scroll to perhaps uh, basically the future of all the world. Uh, the scroll may be the Lamb's Book of Life. That's one suggestion. In the book of Revelation, you just give suggestions. You never tell anybody what anybody what anything means. If anybody goes, this is what this means in the book of Revelation, they're lying because they don't know. We just make guesses. That's the reality. Uh, but the scroll very well might be like all the Christians written down. But I think more probably, it, it's really a reference, this last scroll, to a scroll that contains all of the things that are going to unfold in human history. And so John sees this scroll. I mean, if somebody said, hey, I got your future right here, but you can't look in it, it's a little disappointing. And then if you magnify that, like, hey, I have, I'm like, I could tell you everything that's going to happen. I could tell you who the next president is, and I could tell you, you know, the next war and what's going to take place, but it's locked and I don't have the key. You know what I mean? You'd be like, hey, get the hammer out or do something. And so John is sad that this scroll can't be opened and then, he is told that Jesus, the lion and the lamb, can open the scroll. And then Jesus enters into the scene, and this is what we read in Revelation 5, and verses 8 and 9. And, and when he had taken it, the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And... They sang a new song, sang, and we'll get to the saying in a second. The first thing you need to see, and it's just kind of interesting to me, it's important to me, is that, that, that incense was a part of Old Testament temple worship. And, and so when it says that, that the prayers of God's people, Christians, are, are rising to heaven, to God, right to the throne of God as incense, it's this cool reminder that our prayers please God. Our prayers are worshipful towards God. Sometimes, I think if you're like me or you're like a normal human, it's like when we pray, they, they get as high as the ceiling. You know, you've maybe heard people say that before. Just kind of, you're doing it because you're supposed to or you have to or you recently heard a sermon about it or you felt guilty or you're really desperate. But you don't, you don't really think like, this is, this is going to God. And when I offer up these prayers, he is pleased with these prayers. And that is what this vision shows us. That it's a sweet smell to God when his people bow their heads and say a prayer. And I think specifically when they praise him. And so we see this weird scene here and it says that there's these, these living creatures first of all. And uh, this is not a sermon where I want to launch into the different meanings of the, the different symbols in the book of Revelation. That's a different sermon. I've taught on that a lot, actually, but, but it's not for this sermon. But I want to kind of, just to set up the scene, give you, like, you know, my best idea of what these different groups of people are because it, it, it sells, I think, what, what is really the point that we should grasp from this passage of Scripture. And so the living creatures are probably an exalted group of angelic beings. 
And so the language seems to suggest here and in other places in the Bible uh, that there are angels. You got that part. You've heard of them. Uh, There are angels, but then there are like angels with more authority. They're like the manager angels. They're like the angels who come and talk to God more frequently. And so these four living creatures might be angels that, you know, have more authority and have been given more power and more responsibility in heaven. That's kind of the best guess. And so they are gathered around the throne. And then there's this other group that's referred to as the 24 elders. And I believe that this is a reference to the church or representation of the church and a representation of, of, in fact, all God's people. And, And I think that because in the Old Testament, you had the 12 patriarchs of Israel. So when Israel was started, there was a family and there was 12 kids and those 12 kids became all of the tribes of Israel. The Jewish people kind of sprang from this one family and they still to this day look back on those tribes and those are the the big 12. And then in the New Testament, you have 12 disciples. And those 12 disciples, minus one named Judas, who turned his back on Jesus and was replaced by another disciple, became kind of the founding fathers of the church, the thing that we know as the church. And so in the history of of people, we see that God's people, his followers, have been given to us, have been passed down through 12 patriarchs and then 12 disciples, apostles. And so when we read about the 24 elders, it's, it's like them. It might actually be like a representation of them, but they're not all dead at this point. John would have been like, I saw myself, you know, and it was a little weird because I was still alive. And, uh, and so it can't actually be like them, but it, it is a representation of them. And so we see this representation of disciples and patriarchs and, and the representation of really the entire kind of whole of God's people and these super high up angels all before God's throne, all before the lion, the lamb, Jesus. And it says that they sang a new song. That's what we really want to get to today. In Revelation 42.10, if you were to go back there, the Lord announces, I'm going to do a new work. Someday the work that I do in people's lives is going to be different. And we know looking back on that story that that was uh, just a a prediction that someday Jesus would come and Jesus would die for people's sins and Jesus would rise again so that we might have life forevermore. And so Isaiah predicts this and he says after it happens, which now it has happened, after it happens, the people will sing a new song. It's as if Isaiah is saying, look, the melodies of old will no longer be good enough to speak about, to to get to the heart of what God will do someday when he sends his son, Jesus, to die for people. And so after God has done his great act of salvation, after he has shown his mercy and glory and grace to the world in a new way, then people will need to express themselves in a new song. It doesn't mean probably specifically like a one new song. It just means that it's going to need a new song. It's going to need new songs. And in in the book of Revelation, this is is talked about a couple of times. And we see these kind of pictures of heaven. It's as if the the, the curtains are pulled back and, and we get to look into heaven and what's going on there. And this is one of those. But in Revelation 14, 1 through 3, we see another one. Then I looked and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 
And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And then in Revelation 15, 2 through 4, and the language doesn't show it as much, but we have this kind of picture of a new song again. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God, and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear you? Lord Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, in Revelation 15, we see this representation of an old song. If you were to go back to Exodus uh, and and Exodus 15, and, and you were to read that, which we've already talked about in this series, and you go back, and the Jewish people have just been set free from slavery in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for a really long time, and God sets them free free through a a series of plagues, a series of miracles, and they go out into the desert and the Red Sea collapses on the Egyptians as there's this great chase scene and, and now they're standing out there in the wilderness and the first thing they do is they sing this song and in heaven this song is reinterpreted. Because it's applied in a new way, and not only is it applied in a new way, it talks about different things, but it's as if the people are saying, look, God has delivered again in a new and better way, and so we will, we will sing. John Piper said the song is so special that John calls it a new song, which in the Greek means not merely a new song chronologically, but a new one qualitatively. Every time this Greek term for new is used in the New Testament, it is in connection with salvation. So it is logical that those who are saved and filled with the Holy Spirit will sing a new song, one that is radically different from the world's songs. If there's anything tangibly new, notice this part, if there's anything tangibly new in the Christian life, it ought to be the songs that rise from our hearts as a result of the joy we have in submitting to Him. You see, we, if we've become Christians, have been given a a, a hope, a, a grace, a love, that goes beyond what we knew beforehand, what could ever have been known before we came to to this faith. And so it requires, really, it requires that we have the song in our hearts, that we have a new passion that overflows in singing to our God. We'll talk more about that in a second because John continues, Revelation 5, 9, and 10, you are worthy This is what they're saying. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God's persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have been made, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Notice that John kind of just shows us through this vision that that Jesus is worthy, and we'll come back to that in a minute, but the worthiness of Jesus is the reason for the song. But the other part that you need to to pay attention to is that Jesus has saved people from all over the world. The prediction that was made way back in Daniel that someday a Savior would come and he would would save people from every, every tribe and language and nation. And it's easy for us to forget that before Jesus we didn't have access to God if we aren't Jews. And before Jesus, we weren't part of God's people. We were something else. But if we become Christians, then now because of Jesus, we become a part of the family 
of God. 1 Peter 2.19 says this crazy thing. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I want you to pay really close attention to this part. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Did you notice that we who are Gentiles have been brought into the family of God? We've been turned into a chosen, royal, holy nation that is God's special possession so that we may declare his praises. You see, we think, and rightfully sometimes, but but only partially correct, we think, I've been saved because God just wanted to show me his love. Sure. I've been saved because I wanted to go to heaven. I've been, because God wanted me to go to heaven. I've been saved because, because it was part of God's plan. All true, all great. But if you're a Christian, you've also been saved so that you may declare the praises of God. You have been saved so that you may declare these things that are expressed in the book of Revelation in a new song. And I'll ask this, how are you doing at praising God? You see, you come here and you think, well, I kind of will sing and I'll kind of be involved in the singing. But, but most of us, it seems like this is the moment where we kind of tangibly and actually praise our God. The very thing that we were called into this faith to do, we do best on Sunday mornings and we do it best through our songs, but some of us don't take it very seriously. And my guess is if you can't take it seriously when we sing and we're all together kind of focused on praising God, we call it praise sometimes. If you can't do it then, then you're often, you're not very often doing it in other places. And so the first Peter passage shows us that God has brought us into this faith that allows for this new song so that we may praise, we may sing this new song to him. And so therefore we ought to take it very seriously. He continues in Revelation 5, 11 and 12. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they were saying. So the angels seem here to be joining in the song. 10,000 was the highest number that could easily be said in Greek. So we have like, I don't know, we could say infinity or we could say a billion. But the Greeks didn't have that. The Roman people didn't have that. They just had 10,000. And so when John says 10,000 times 10,000, John's just saying, I I looked out and and I saw a whole bunch of angels. I saw more angels than I can count. They were innumerable amount of angels that that were in front of me. And they were falling with the living creatures and, and with the elders. And they were also praising our God. In one of Chris Tomlin's live songs, uh, on my favorite worship singing CD, uh, Passion One Day Live, uh, it, it was this, it just hit at the right time in my life. And that not that most songs, just by the way, when they hit at the right time, then we have an emotional connection with them. Uh, and, and in that song, he just quotes this in the middle of it. I don't know, it's like my least favorite song on the whole CD, but, but he actually quotes that passage right there. And every time it's inspiring, and that's what it's supposed to be, is inspiring. 
John isn't teaching us anything except to say, look, this is how it's going to be, and it's pretty awesome. Jesus enjoys so, uh, uh, deserves so much praise from us uh, that there is this uncountable amount of angels that are falling before him and singing his praises. 10,000 times 10,000. Revelation 5.12 tells us what they are saying, probably singing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Jesus, let me just make this clear. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Jesus is worthy of everything that is good. And Jesus is worthy of your singing. You, You see, I think just... Just something I know in my life, and I think it's true in other people's lives. But but the more, the more you deem Jesus worthy of everything good about you and everything good in existence and just kind of everything good, honor and power and glory and wisdom and wealth, the more you deem Jesus worthy, the more compelled you are to sing the new song, the more compelled you are to sing to him. I, I just would make a prediction, and that is that if you take time to get away, if you go, I just don't feel like singing. I've never been a person that sings. I don't like this singing. I don't like to be here and sing with other people. It's weird for me. I think, this is my prediction, if you just get away with the Bible and you read passages that remind you of the amazing gift that you have in Jesus and how much he suffered so that you might have eternal life, so that you might someday be in heaven with these angels and the living creatures and the elders, if you just read about how much Jesus did for you, then you're gonna be compelled, maybe just a little more, but you're going to be compelled more to sing to the, the Jesus who has done so much for you. For me, it's Isaiah 53, especially verses 5 and 6. And uh, when I read those and I, I read about how Jesus paid the price for my sins, how he was crushed for my iniquities and he was bruised for my transgressions and the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. When I read that and I think about, wow, I've done a whole bunch of bad stuff and all of that was laid upon Jesus. He took every punishment for that. Everything I've done wrong, Jesus paid for it when he died on the cross. It, it compels me to want to sing more and to sing from a deeper place. And sometimes it compels me to want to sing louder, and sometimes it compels me to want to put my hands up, and sometimes it compels me to want to sing with my face on the ground, and sometimes it compels me to want to sing softer, but it moves me to sing in a different way because I I am recognizing how worthy Jesus is. I I think for some, maybe even in our congregation, The problem that you have with singing, the reason that you don't feel like singing is that you just don't see Jesus as that worthy. And you would go mentally and probably out loud if you call yourself a Christian, yeah, Jesus is worthy of all of me. But somewhere in the core of who you are, you don't really believe it. And so when I'm up here and I'm saying sing from the deepest places of who you are, it's hard, to, it's hard to connect that to Jesus because in the deepest places, your heart, where you, where you kind of have what you believe and, and what you feel and what drives your day-to-day interactions, I mean, in that place, Jesus just doesn't really that worthy. And so to sing from there is to not sing at all because these angels and the living creatures and the elders sitting in heaven, kind of knowing the scope of history and all that Jesus has done for them and how great heaven is and how much that, that 
I'll get to the people in a second, but how much Jesus has done for humanity, kind of recognizing that, they can't help but just fall on their faces and sing and say, you're worthy of everything good that I am and that I have and that I can possibly give you. And then we read, and this is so cool. This is the scene. If this, I mean, just this scene. Should just, we should just start singing because of this scene. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and, and on the sea and all that is in them saying. Someday, if you are a Christian, you will join in the heavenly praise of Jesus, of God. And the question is, why not now? Why not now? And here's what they say. They may not be singing. The creation may not be singing, and perhaps they're not singing because, it, you know, it's hard for a fish to sing or whatever. Um, but, but here's what they're declaring somehow in some way. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Craig Keener says this, Joy, shouting, instruments, and celebration do not by themselves constitute worship. Otherwise, some college frat parties would qualify. At the heart of worship is declaring to God how majestic he is and how great his works are. You see, when we sing, the singing isn't the first part. The first part is in our hearts saying, I believe that Jesus is worthy of everything good. And I want to show him praise and honor and glory. And if you come on a Sunday morning and you think, well, I'll just get into the singing today. It's not going to work. But if you come saying, I want to give him praise and honor and glory and power. I want to show him all that he is worth. And I want to declare all that he is worth. And I want to demonstrate all that he is worth to everybody around me. Then when we sing, we sing in a different way. We sing in a different way. I'll just ask this question because notice how they declare this. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. They say two things about Jesus here. They say first that Jesus is king. And I'll just ask this question. Here's the question. Ready? Does Jesus sit on the throne of your heart? It's a little, little cliche. Uh, is Jesus the most important? Is Jesus the one that you answer to at the end of the day? Is Jesus the one that you're living for? Is Jesus the one that you're trying to serve? Is Jesus the one that you're trying to be obedient to? Because if you don't declare Jesus as king, it's going to be really hard for you to sing to him in a way that, that matters, that is important, that is value, that comes from the deepest places of your heart. And then they declare him as lamb. Do you believe and do you think about the fact that Jesus suffered and died as the lamb on the cross? It's metaphorical language for what happened in the Old Testament when lambs would be led to slaughter and they'd be slaughtered so that people's sins could be covered over for a little while. But Jesus shows up on the scene and Jesus dies as the, as the sacrificial lamb and he dies so that you may have eternal life. And if you don't believe that and if you don't really think about that and you don't really care about that and you're not that excited about that, th then you're not gonna be able to sing to Jesus Jesus in a way that matters. You see, creation here falls down and says, you king, you savior, you are worthy of our praise, honor, glory, and power forever and ever. And the passage closes by saying, the four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Amen is just a, a word that means let it be. And so here we have these angelic beings that are like big time angels going, let it be. This is the way that it should be. This is how it should be. And I think we should listen to those words. And then they fall down. They fall down. It's the second time we've seen that they fall down. And 
something that we could talk about and something I actually thought I was going to put into this series of sermons, but it took a, a different direction. And that is that, that our body position often suggests uh, whether or not I, I think we're actually worshiping when we sing. And, and look, I'm not saying that all of us should fall down. I'm not saying all of us should put our hands up, but our body positions do reflect in a lot of ways our desire to worship God. Uh, and the song I can only imagine that we love and we sing at funerals and, and it's this kind of song that I think kind of internationally, even outside of Christian circles, we like because it's a picture of heaven. Uh, it says this, you, you probably know this line, will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or to my knees will I fall? And the writer of that song got to the heart of it. Sometimes our bodies are going to do different things because we're trying to express praise to God. Now look, there's, I mean, people are paralyzed and people have injuries and it's not the actual position that matters. It's that we're doing with all of our, all of ourselves what is reflected in our hearts. And I've told you that sometimes I've been face down on the ground praying. Sometimes it makes more sense for me to be on my knees. Sometimes it makes sense to, to stand with my hands up. Most oftentimes when I'm singing, uh, and you could know this because you watch me preach week in and week out, when I, when I really am trying to emphasize truth, uh, it's talking with my hands. And, and you know, that's not something anybody taught me or that everybody around me does. But for me, when I'm praising through song, I, I, now you're just looking at my hands. Um, when I'm praising God, then I, I'm using my hands. And sometimes I'm using my hands to try to draw myself into uh, singing and singing from the deepest places of my being and, and really trying to get into the singing. And sometimes it's because I'm already singing in that way. But but like for me, when when we say like, uh, I will give you all my heart, then, then it helps for me to touch my heart because it's like I'm like in some way offering it. And these living creatures, they're just inspired by this scene and by who Jesus is and how worthy he is, and they fall down before God. And I think one of the things that we've done to kind of quench passionate singing in, in the American church is that we've We've suggested that, that you should just follow along with your bodies. We tell you when to stand. We tell you when to sit. We try not to do that very much in our church, um, but, but we do some leading. Um, but we should be reflecting our hearts through our bodies when we sing. Jonathan Edwards said a couple of awesome things. And uh, as we come to the end of the series, I think that, that we need to look at them uh, he says, certainly such a neglect, talking about people not getting into singing, is not consonant to the hope and expectation of spending an eternity in that work. It is an appointment of God that we should not only praise in our prayers, but that we should sing his praises. So also the saints in heaven are represented as singing God's praises. And is that their happy and glorious employment and it is their happiest and glorious employment. And yet shall it be so neglected by us, we who hope for heaven? Is there, if there be any of the godly that do neglect that duty, I would desire them to consider how discordant such a neglect is with their profession, with their state, and with the mercies which God has bestowed. How much cause has God given you to sing his praise? You received more to prompt you to praise God than all natural men in the world. And can you content yourself to live in the world without singing the praises of your heavenly Father and your glorious Redeemer? Jonathan Edwards says, look, you look up, 
and you, you, the curtain is pulled back on what's taking place in heaven, and, and you say, that's where I'll be someday, but I'm not really going to sing now. He also said this other thing. He said, in an immensely more perfect and exalted manner we will sing than we can do in this world. You will not be troubled with such a dead and dull heart, with so much coldness, so many clogs and burdens from corruption and from an earthly mind, with the wandering, unsteady heart, with so much darkness and so much hypocrisy. You should be one of that vast assembly that prays God so fervently that their voice is as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thunderings. You see, what, what Jonathan Edwards says to us is what I think we need to recognize today. We're never going to be able to match what is taking place in heaven while we live on this earth. There are distractions, there are frustrations, there are uh, hindrances and us falling down on the ground because our bodies hurt. There are, there are sins in our lives. There are things that we are not ready to give to God that we haven't given to God. Uh, there are days where our emotions cannot connect with the songs that we are singing. And someday we will sing more perfectly. However, when we know what is taking place in heaven, we should do our best to match it right now. You see, I think, I've just been around, I've been in church a long time, and there's this mindset that I've, that I've recognized, that I see especially now that we've done this series and that, I, that I've thought through this sermon. We think, someday I will die or Jesus will come back and then I'm really gonna sing to Jesus. And I think that we're no different than somebody as we began the sermon by saying uh, that somebody that has a goal but doesn't do anything that's in line with that goal. We are the opposite of me being out in the front yard in the driveway taking shots and practicing so that someday I might hit a, a big three-pointer for the Duke Blue Devils or jumping into the couch because I needed to learn to take contact. We are the opposite of that. And we just, we're like this person who says, someday I want to do this but I'm not going to do anything now. Someday I'll be there, but I'm not going to do anything now. Man, I'm going to be a teacher. Are you making steps to go to school? No. Do you have any plans to take steps to go to school? No, but I'm going to do it someday. I'm going to be a teacher. We look at those people and go, what are you doing? And I think that sometimes God's probably looking down at us and going, what are you doing? You're talking about someday being here with me and worshiping in this way and you're inspired by this scene, but yet you're down there not trying to act it out at all. See, what I want to get to today, what I think this passage suggests to us is that in eternity, eternity, we have this idea that we're just going to sing all the time and I want to say we're not going to sing all the time, but we are going to sing and we are going to have these worship experiences that are absolutely incredible. And because we know that and because we want to be there, we ought to do our best to live it out now. If you aren't worshiping, if you aren't singing in a way that is an attempt to duplicate what you will someday do when you are in eternity in heaven with the golden streets and all that, then I don't think you're singing correctly. The challenge for us is, is to look and say, yeah, my heart's a little dull today, and yeah, I don't feel as passionate as I should, or yeah, I have a whole bunch of distractions, and now here we are at church, and I don't really want to do this thing, but, but the goal 
The goal is to say, look what's going on in heaven. Let's do our best to duplicate it here. Let's do our best to duplicate it now. I want to finish with this this quote from just a blog post, but I thought it was a great send-off. He asked this first, Will you on that day be one of the great multitude that no one could number, singing the song of the Lamb, singing his praises? I hope you'll be there, singing the song of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Sing now, sing forever. Singing matters, and it matters that we do it together. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that we would be a church that does our best to sing to you in a way that reflects our future. I pray that we would be a church that is willing to be undignified because we want to come before your throne each week in the best way that we can, not a perfect way like we will in eternity, but the best way that we can. And we want to declare your new song. We want to declare your praises in a way that is in line, Lord, with what you have done for us and what you have done in us, God. God, I pray, and first first I want to say thank you for for the work that you've done in our church. And just to hear the voices in a new way is is an indicator to me that that there's a difference that you've you've caused in our people, that, that you've encouraged them and your Holy Spirit has fallen upon them as we're now inviting you to do every week. And and you've challenged them, Lord, and I thank you for that. But I pray even more as, as this sermon series finishes and, and as people in front of me and behind me have, have Revelation 5 in their minds, I pray that right now your spirit would fall and, and it would challenge their hearts and, and you would speak kind of this, these, this truth into our lives that someday we will be there and we will do that and, and you would cause us to want to do it now, Lord. God, I know it's lofty and, and we're, we're pretty far away from this, but, but today I ask that you take us a step forward. When we sing here on Sundays, I pray that every person who walks in could, could grasp, can see, can visualize what heaven will someday be like. Different people, some that don't have very much in common with the people next to them, with different struggles and, and different backgrounds all coming together, Lord to sing to you a new song because we believe that you are both Savior and King of the universe and because we deem you worthy of all our honor and glory. I pray, Lord, that you would make us a church that sings now because we are ready to sing forever, Lord, because singing matters to your heart. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.